0: Hi, welcome along to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith, and Ben Jacobs joins me today. How are you, Ben?
1: Good morning, Steve. I'm good. How are you?
0: Very good. Good to see you, mate. And uh, you've had a delivery.
1: <laughs> I have had a delivery. Got to be careful which side of it I show first, but I want to <laughs> say a big thank you to John. I will hold it up to the camera. There we go. The right <laughs> side of the camera first. The first love, Leicester City, but when I turn it around, and look how he sneakily put my name on the Newcastle side as well. <laughs> I've just been accused of being a closet Newcastle fan. There are pictures of me in a Newcastle shirt, albeit when Leicester played Newcastle, I cheered the Leicester goal. And now I've got a mug with both logos on. So very kind of John to send me that. I will always accept free Newcastle merchandise, but still a Leicester fan. And let's be clear here. The mug says, first love, Leicester City.
0: Fantastic. Great stuff. Thanks to John from qtechshop.co.uk. Brilliant stuff, mate. The guy who runs our website, of course, nufcmatters.com. Okay, so Ben, uh, since we last had you won, it's now been officially confirmed, once again, that it's not coming home.
1: (laughs) It's not coming home. The cat that was in England's training camp is coming home, but the World Cup isn't. And I'm not really sure how to look at this because in the back of my mind, for really the last five or six years, I've had that FA goal, which is to win the World Cup in Qatar. And it's a slightly odd aspiration because of the squad that we've got. The quality is there, so they're capable of winning it. But you look at the age and you think all of these young players are going to stay together for four years. And at 2026, will be in their mid-20s or their late 20s and at their peak. So I'm sort of surprised if they preempted that a lot of these young players would make the squad for Qatar, that they would put the pressure on them to win it in Qatar rather than in America, Canada and Mexico, when statistically they'll be even stronger because they'll be at that perfect age where not only will they have played together for another four years predominantly, but they'll be at their peak. So when I look at this World Cup, I feel a bit sorry for the squad in terms of the pressure that's been on them. And everybody expected them to win. The it's coming home is the more flippant mantra that we go by. But the FA's stated goal is we will win the World Cup in Qatar. And I think when you're dealing with such young players, however good, however mature, that's unnecessary pressure. Then when we look at how they performed, I think they were admirable against France. As soon as they equalised, they were the more likely winner. And had Harry Kane scored the penalty, which unfortunately he put over the bar, I think England would have gone on to win the game. And then you suddenly start looking at Morocco and saying England would be favourites for that. And before you know it, they're on paper, at least not that it means anything in football, into a World Cup final. So I suppose what I'm saying is it's fine margins. And I also feel sorry for Kane because it's not just a missed penalty that people will focus on It was a very unique situation. A penalty is always pressurised. Then it's in a World Cup quarterfinal that adds extra pressure. But I think the under-talked-about aspect of it is just the fact that he'd taken a penalty already and against his club goalkeeper. So if it was the first penalty, you have one approach. As soon as you take the second penalty, there's some evidence from that game on the table in terms of where you put the last one. And then Lloris will have faced many Harry Kane penalties and training for Spurs. So I'd love to hear Kane talk about it, because maybe he just hit it a little bit too hard with Purchase that put it over the bar. And players also say, by the way, that the World Cup balls are lighter than the Premier League ones. So not that I'm making any excuses for Kane, but perhaps it was just a bad penalty from his perspective. But is there also a logic that he's up against a goalkeeper he knows so well. So there's an extra psychological level there. And I think as soon as he runs up, he sees Lloris move to the goalkeeper's right. And that's the area he's going to go again. The same as the first penalty. And I just wonder whether because he saw Lloris move so early and he'd made up his mind, if he had to try and elevate it to get it a little bit higher, because he knew that Lloris, having moved early, would save it low if it was in the same spot as the first one. I'm just speculating. Kane hasn't spoken about it. But I think when we analyse that missed penalty, we shouldn't just glibly say it was a bad penalty, we should consider the very unique circumstances. And also the fact that regardless of that penalty, England conceded two goals against the run of play. So there are others to blame for the exit, but overall they showed their quality. They showed their potential. But they don't come home with a trophy. And how many generations, how many World Cups, how many times have we said exactly the same thing? Huge quality, golden generation, great potential, really enthralling going forwards, definitely can win it, but they don't. And now they need to look to rectify that in four years' time.
0: I guess the big question now then is, you know, does he stay or does he go? And and Gareth Southgate is is I guess he's he's having a period of reflection. Um, he's not one hundred percent sure whether he should stay on. His contract runs, of course, until the, you know the the end of the uh, the Euro tournament um, uh, in a couple of years' time. What's your take on that?
1: I think, and I don't mean this harshly, he needs to make up his mind very very quickly because four years flies by. And because you have European championships in between, it isn't four years. And what England need is consistency. So if Southgate stays, it's because the potential of this group is best under him. And continuity in terms of potential selection and tactics are vital. And if they believe in the project, if they believe in the manager, then I think Gareth Southgate should lead it forwards. And if Southgate feels like four years is a long way away and a change is needed, and ultimately it's on the coaching side, not in the selection, then he needs to quit slash walk away by mutual consent as soon as possible. And again, to reiterate, I don't mean that out of a harshness. It's just because you have to know where you stand. And it's very telling that a number of World Cup managers have after their exit from the World Cup quit almost instantly to allow the rebuilding process. So I don't think Southgate did a bad job. I actually think despite coming under criticism for some tactical and individual selections, most of the time he proved why he was picking certain individuals. You can easily, in hindsight, pick holes left, right and centre. We had the should Foden have started earlier in the tournament debate, but Southgate's selections were justified. You could say Callum Wilson could have got more game time when Harry Kane wasn't fully fit but Kane ultimately still contributed with assists and goals and is England's captain and then James Madison didn't get any minutes and isn't that ironic easy to say in retrospect but 2-1 France injury time final kick of the game free kick right on the edge of the area England come very close agonizingly so to equalizing it scuffs the top of the goal it was a pretty well hit free kick but as soon as you see that ball placed down there what do you say? It's a little bit too close to get it up and over the wall. And who's one of the best set-piece specialists around from that kind of distance that can get it under the wall, around the wall, or somehow, against science, get it up and down and in the back of the net? James Madison. He's one of the best free-kick takers in Europe at the moment and arguably the top one in the Premier League in terms of his success rate of hitting the target and scoring goals. So imagine... If you bring him on, almost like a kicker in the NFL, just to take that last free kick. And it's so easy for us as journalists to make these kind of theories because you can flip it the other way and say he's played no minutes. If he comes on cold and he hits the wall and England go out, people will say, why didn't you let someone else take it? But these are the kind of debates around Gareth Southgate. Is he too loyal to certain players? Should he have given minutes to everybody at the tournament, much like Tite did at Brazil to build team unity? Was there any harm in that? Especially when England were up and ahead against Wales, you could have brought on pretty much anyone. I loved it when Tite took off Alisson and brought on the third-choice goalkeeper, Weverton because it sent a message saying everyone in this squad is included. So there's question marks there about if Gareth Southgate's too loyal to certain players, but generally speaking... I think he's got most of the decisions right. And I just like continuity because my worry with a new coach is just that you reset and everyone gets excited for a bit, but it's not club management. So when you get a new coach in club management, that coach can implement a tactical system and then regardless of what he inherits, can buy and develop in order to allow it to work. But in the international football, you can't do that. So if (laughs) Mauricio Pochettino or Brendan Rodgers comes in tomorrow, they can't go out and just find an Mbappe or a Messi. They're stuck. And we're lucky because we're blessed with a lot of talent, but they're stuck with English players. So I don't think any new manager, selection-wise, will be picking too many different players. Maybe Ivan Tony, assuming that there's no ban for the alleged betting breaches perhaps a few new players that will come through in the next four years. But who's to say that they're not already on Gareth Southgate's radar? So really, a new England manager is only going to instill a new mentality, a new style of training and possibly new tactics. And that's where, again, I look at Southgate and say, I quite like the back four. I quite like two in midfield with Bellingham and Rice. I also like the opportunity for Henderson and Rice and Bellingham to play in a more advanced role. I don't mind the front three. And as long as Kane's fit, I'm happy with him leading the line. So then it becomes on the players and it becomes on continuity to win things. And that's where Argentina have done really well so far and France as well. They have kept faith With managers, Scaloni's taken Argentina before the tournament on a 36-game unbeaten run. Didier Deschamps is obviously looking for back-to-back titles. And it means that with France, when they've had all these injuries, the continuity and the team ethic has seen them through. And with Argentina, the winning mentality means even losing to Saudi Arabia in the opening game has allowed them to recover and reach the World Cup final. So I don't want Southgate to go because I think continuity is the most important thing at international football. And I think we fall into the trap of looking at names and taking a club mentality approach and saying, well, Tuchel's a winner, he would motivate them. Pochettino's well-liked and knows a lot of the England players. Brendan Rodgers gets the best out of young players, but this isn't club football. And if you keep chopping and changing, I think it becomes a bit counterproductive comparative to just allowing a manager to see through different tournaments with the same set of players. And Southgate got England to a World Cup semi. He got England to a World Cup quarter that almost went a bit further. Why not give him one more shot in four years' time?
0: Interesting as well. You you mentioned uh, a couple of managers there, Pochettino and Tuchel, who've been you know linked with the job. Um, I think it was Jimmy Carragher came out and and said you know it it should be an Englishman who who manages England. And and you know I, I guess in the context of the way that he said it, maybe it was taken out of context. I'm I'm not 100 percent sure, but it, the headline stated that. You know for, for me. I, you know, I just think that if, if if somebody is the right person for the job, it doesn't matter what nationality they are. Um, and, and we've been down the road of foreign managers. We, we've had, you know, the, the best of British as well. What's, what, what's your feeling if, if Southgate does decide to walk away? Um, do you think we should go foreign again?
1: I don't think that we should have a rule that says it has to be English or preference should be given to an English manager Unless the rules of football change and go against, to some extent, employment law and say that every single nation has to have players from that nation, managers from that nation, coaches from that nation because they want to move it in that direction. And I think that it's counterproductive because there's so many emerging nations outside of Europe's big countries that can't find a qualified manager of their own nationality and actually need experienced managers from other nationalities to move them forwards. And we know the likes of Fabio Capello, for example, former England manager and Scolari as well, have gone to different countries away from their birth nation to help develop them. And Qatar is another example of that too. So it helps developing nations to have foreign coaches who have impressive CVs because they're the ones that can instill the right mentality for them to move on. So then coming back to England, do we need an English manager? No. Absolutely not. And I think that the key in hiring is are they qualified and can they bring success? And if you flash forwards four years time, whoever the England manager is, if England win the World Cup, nobody will be talking about their nationality. And Jamie Carragher's comments surprised me because there's no difference because it's the same federation between the Lionesses and England. And the Lionesses have got Serena Weigman, who is not English, obviously. She's a serial winner. She won the Euros for England. We celebrate that. She's the right coach for the job. And if she's right for the Lionesses, then logically any foreign coach could be a perfect fit for England. It all just depends upon the CV. But we shouldn't be looking for English only if there's another available candidate that everybody believes is better And as the Premier League becomes more globalised, and it has been for a decade now, foreign managers have come into the league. And because of that, they know the English players and they work with the English players better than most. So I understand why other nations where most of the managers perhaps are of the same nationality as the league or don't have as many foreign players and coaches within it choose to keep a lot of their coaching staff, including their lead manager, of the same nationality as their nation. But the Premier League is a different breed. So why would we employ only an English manager if three candidates or more have worked within the Premier League and are not English? It would just makes no sense. Brendan Rodgers, Mauricio Pochettino, Thomas Tuchel all of whom have managed at the top level in the Premier League, all of whom have managed with current England internationals, all of whom have played against, as managers, current England internationals, all of whom know the ins and outs, day by day, of every single team in the Premier League because they've scouted them. And therefore, why couldn't they get the best out of the team? And I think that it's disrespectful to assume that if you employ somebody like pochettino that when he comes up against his birth nation his loyalties are going to be split or he's not going to be as invested because he's not patriotic about england i just don't think that's true but if you get a sense of that at interview then of course you hold that against the candidate but if you don't get a sense of that at interview you proceed and hire them if they're the most qualified person for the job So that is my belief, that if Serena Weigman is right for the Lionesses, then any foreign coach is equally as much of a fit for England, as long as they are a serial winner. And that's what Jamie Carragher called Serena Weigman, a serial winner. If she's a serial winner and England can find on the men's side a serial winner, then employ them, whether they're English or not. So I think the advantages of an English coach are usually, and historically, they would understand the culture, They would have no language barriers. They would have worked with the players before. They will be wildly patriotic about wanting to bring success. They will understand the club country dynamic. But all of that's applicable to the candidates that we're talking about that are foreign. So if we were bringing in a foreign coach that didn't speak fluent English, that hadn't managed in the Premier League, perhaps there would be a debate. But that debate would ultimately conclude that, the English candidate comparative to that example was better because they did speak the English language because they had managed in the Premier League because they did know the players because they were aware of the club country balance. And that's logical, but that's not giving preference to an English coach. That's laying out the two candidates and saying that one of them understands the system and the players and the other doesn't. But in this case, it shouldn't be English versus foreign. It should be who are the candidates and each of them that are interested in Rodgers, Pochettino and Tuchel anyway, are almost the same as an English coach because of their affinity with the Premier League, because they all speak fluent English, because they do know the players and because they understand the club country dynamic. And therefore, each of them, I think, could do a fantastic job for England if they were considered and given the job should Gareth Southgate lead. So it's too superficial to say, should it be foreign or should it be English? What we should be simply asking is, is the candidate qualified. And if they're qualified and a serial winner, who cares about their nationality?
0: Yeah, good point. Okay, so we know now the finalists are Argentina and France. Who's your favourite and who's your money on?
1: Argentina for me are the favourites and that's just because they're getting better and better as the tournament's gone on and there's so much desire to win the World Cup for Lionel Messi that I believe... They'll have too much, whereas France have found a way to win, but they really haven't been at their best in certain games. They lost to Tunisia. They were second best against England for large parts of the game. Morocco gave them a real run as well. So France have scored goals against the run of play. They've been nonchalant at times. They've surrendered possession. It is how they play. They're devastating on the counter-attack. But if you compare the two key players, Messi and Mbappe, Messi... Is getting stronger and stronger throughout the tournament. Five goals, three assists, whereas Killian Mbappe has equally contributed five goals and two assists. But was he at his best against Morocco apart from the mesmerising assist? I don't think so. Was he particularly influential against England in the previous game? I also don't think so. He was well-pleased out of the game. So Argentina will see a plan to shut Mbappe out of the game. They've still got to deal with the excellent Griezmann, who's got three assists, and Olivier Giroud, and what a tournament he's had, because in 2018, Giroud didn't even have a single shot on target. And now he's scored four goals. But the beauty from Argentina's point of view is not only Messi pulling the strings, but every time he does so, it creates space for others. And Julian Alvarez, in particular, has been able to benefit from that. And he's had a phenomenal season. Depaul is going to be important. Emi Martinez, as well, in goal, who's been absolutely sensational and that's why Argentina have given him so much love in their previous game when they went through against the Netherlands everyone ran to the left corner but Messi went straight to Martinez in the right corner to celebrate because he knew how important his goalkeeper was in that game but also throughout the entire tournament so I feel like Argentina are going to have too much firepower and that's the difference that you can surrender the ball to England or Morocco and France were quite confident but With Argentina, if they give them the ball, I think they'll be able to make them pay and early in the game. And then if Argentina score first, France have to change their style. And that's suddenly when Argentina might be able to kill the game off. So if history is anything to go by, it'll be a high scoring final. When they met in 2018 in the round of 16, France won the game by four goals to three. And I think because both sides are capable of scoring goals, if there is an early goal, we're again going to see a very high scoring and entertaining final. It's going to be close, but France don't have the depth and they got away with it against England and also Morocco as well. But when you consider that Kimpembe and Lucas Hernandez and Pogba and Kante and possibly Benzema I say possibly because there is some rumblings he might fly back in now he's close to full fitness and he wasn't ever taken out of the squad and replaced so they could technically fly him back in Deschamps refused to answer the question but he'll get a medal either way if France win the World Cup so he's technically one of the injuries as well and if he comes back then that would be a story in itself but when I give that list Ballon d'Or winner Benzema, Pogba, Kante, Kimpembe, Lucas Hernandez, some injured before the tournament, some injured at the tournament. They don't have the depth. So if anything goes wrong, then they can't turn to quite as deep a bench, whereas Argentina can. And I think that France leading a game versus France behind in a game are two completely different things. So once again, if Argentina score first, it's a massive test for France. And I just think that... The almost home-like crowd, because Argentina will have the lion's share of support, the desire to win the World Cup for Messi, the depth that Argentina have and the unity versus the French side that have looked nonchalant at times and don't have the same amount of depth due to the injured players, do make Argentina narrow favourites to win the game
0: got to ask you about Morocco, uh, the first African team to get to the semi-finals of the World Cup. I mean, you know, go back to 1990 and the, the emergence of Cameroon. And, you know, it, it's, it's been a remarkable progression of uh, an African nation in, in, in the world of football. And um, uh, Morocco came so close.
1: Brilliant. Not only in how they performed on the field, but their fans offered as well. I love the fact that their family were out there. We saw players dancing with their mums on field. The coach as well had his mum over from Paris. And that was the first ever time she travelled to see him either play or manage. He won 45 caps for Morocco. And he only got the job 106 days ago, based on the time of recording. And he takes his nation to a World Cup semi-final. So just a brilliant moment. And I'm glad, even though it's often derided, that there's now a third-place playoff because it's an opportunity for Morocco to make more history and finish in third place and bow out with a win. And trust me, that will mean something to them and also to other nations in the Middle East and North Africa. And what we've seen from Morocco is just a fearless attitude, a superb unity and a load of quality. Their goalkeeper, Bono, has been absolutely fantastic. It was a shame against... France, that Says the captain, had to go off injured. Amrabat, Unnaiz had a great tournament too. And Amrabat, by the way, will be in the shop window for sure. Fiorentina don't want to sell him, but one of the players to watch because of the kind of World Cup that he's had. Yusuf Nesri too has had a brilliant World Cup. A little bit isolated against France, but a fantastic leap, a Ronaldo-like leap to knock Portugal out of the World Cup. And then Hakimi, who's great friends with Kylian Mbappe, and it was lovely to see those two embrace and swap shirts at full-time as well, has been really important driving forwards at full-back. And Hakim Ziyech has looked like a completely different player for Morocco than Chelsea, providing goals, assists, leadership, vision, tenacity, and tracking back and defending as well. And if he goes back to Chelsea with that kind of form, he'll start to break into the starting 11 and if he doesn't then he puts himself in the shop window for a January transfer with AC Milan potentially still interested. So Morocco have been a joy to watch, their fans have been tremendous as well and it's really important culturally to make the point how significant this is to the Middle East and North Africa because I think we as Europeans sometimes don't understand the significance to a continent because imagine being English, and suddenly cheering on Germany or France because it's good for Europe. We'd never traditionally do that unless we've got heritage in another one of those countries. And that's because we're a developed continent in football that's well-funded with strong European leagues. But in Africa, there's a range of countries that don't feel they're anywhere near to qualifying for the World Cup and the shared heritage and religion. So when one nation does well, you get behind them because you've got a lot in common away from the football field. And then in addition to that, Morocco is in a very unique position because in North Africa, and it's part of loosely the Middle East and North Africa in terms of the fan base that it draws. And Qatar, Saudi Arabia fall into that as well. And this is a Qatar World Cup. So you actually get support from Africa, but also from the Middle East, And therefore, the Qataris have adopted Morocco. The Saudis have adopted Morocco. Other African continent uh, countries, I should say, have adopted Morocco. So you get a lot of fans from other countries that either have a genuine heritage with Morocco or don't, but they have a shared culture. So they back them. And that's hugely significant. And the final point to make is that When a team does well, it puts them on the radar to get more funding, to get more sponsors, to get more support. Newcastle will be the same. You know, you qualify for the Champions League. It opens the door to an extra tier of money that can come in and that helps you develop and grow stronger. And eventually it trickles to your grassroots and therefore you have a return in terms of the next major tournament that you play at. And Morocco will look to be capitalising on that when they go to the next AFCON or the next World Cup. But it also gives them the opportunity to bid for a World Cup potentially and win it, which will be highly significant as well. And Morocco have tried before, but they failed and they've always been judged detrimentally on not having the same level of funding and infrastructure as other bidders. But their actual fan base and football culture trumps a number of other of their rivals when they've come to bid. So let's see whether they bid again probably in partnership with somebody else because of this expanded World Cup. And then you suddenly get a World Cup for large parts of Africa that we've never really had before. South Africa is the only World Cup that's gone to Africa. And it's high time that we get a World Cup in North Africa or Central Africa, where there's huge passionate fan bases. And if that happens at some point in the next two or three World Cups, you not only get funding and an improvement in the infrastructure for many African nations, but you'll get an elevation in standard. And I think that's what's getting a lot of people excited about this Morocco run, that they're setting a pathway, they're laying down a marker to say to other African nations, you can do exactly the same. You can compete with the European and the South American nations. And by being so globally in the public eye and having this fairy tale, it's inspiring to others And in practical terms and financial terms, it hopefully catalyzes a progression where Morocco and other nations will be able to benefit in terms of support and investment. And also, there's hopefully players that have got decisions to make about eligibility that are weighing up, potentially picking an African nation or a European nation. And maybe Morocco's journey will allow them to make that decision and pick Morocco. And when you look at the Morocco squad at this World Cup, 15 of the 26 Moroccan players have dual nationality and were not born in Morocco. So that's my point, that for Morocco to succeed, they've had to go to players with Moroccan heritage, usually parents, one parents at least, and say to them, you were born in the Netherlands, you were born in France, you were born in Belgium, you were born in Canada, even. Pick Morocco. And the players got a decision to make. And what we want... as players develop and have moroccan parents have moroccan heritage and the same for other african countries for them to choose the african nation rather than a european nation and in doing so allow many african nations the biggest possible pool of talent and of course it's a whole debate here because some would argue the opposite well why would they pick morocco even with moroccan parents if the netherlands wanted them because they were born in the netherlands And that's the whole wooing process that a country like Morocco has had to play on the fact that you can play for Morocco now, you're not at the Netherlands standard, or you can play for Morocco because your parents are Moroccan and that's your heritage. And the Netherlands, obviously, if they want the same player, turn around and say, but you were born in the Netherlands, why wouldn't you pick your birth country? And that debate is there to be had. And it's quite an intriguing one. But as Morocco grow, my point is they'll be in a stronger position to get, more of these types of players, picking them over the European equivalent. And that will give them depth, that will give them quality and allow them to progress even further. And they've done that quite well, obviously, already, because they've got 15 players within this World Cup squad that were not born in Morocco. But who knows how many other players eligible for Morocco are out there that now may pick Morocco because of this World Cup fairy tale.
0: This World Cup, of course, was surrounded with controversy before a ball was kicked. Mm Give us your your opinion on how well you think this, this
1: World Cup's gone in Qatar. On the football side, it's been brilliant. Upsets, drama and the final probably that the organisers, other than Qatar being in there, somehow would have wanted. It's Mbappe against Messi. Logistically, it's been a phenomenal World Cup. There's something very compelling and easy about a one-city World Cup. And I think that fans that have been over will attest to that the metro is good there's free buses out of the stadiums and being able to just stay in one hotel in one city and see lots of games is tremendous and the carbon footprint of that is reduced comparative for example to America Canada and Mexico in four years time so I don't think you'll find anybody who's gone out to Qatar moaning about climate if anything, you needed a jumper, moaning about accommodation. I know some of the fan hubs at £200 a night were derided, but anyone in a hotel or an Airbnb will be very happy with their accommodation. And it's been quite novel, really, and cosmopolitan, seeing all the different nationalities that if they weren't in your group, you wouldn't normally cross paths with at a traditional World Cup. So I'm in favor of a one-city World Cup. I think that that has been excellent. But then we do have to look at the backdrop, allegations of corruption and human rights issues, the treatment of migrant workers. We can't forget about that. Otherwise, we fall into the trap of sports washing. So now, because the tournament's coming to a close, we're looking for legacy. Is the commitment to looking after the welfare of migrant workers going to continue after the World Cup? There's a charter that exists to make sure that passports are not confiscated, that they're paid electronically and on time, that the minimum wage goes up. So all of that needs to maintain and have a scrutiny on it after the World Cup. And this is what people forget, really, because Newcastle, for example, will be connected to Saudi Arabia and fans will say Saudi Arabia is scapegoated and everyone's always talking about Saudi Arabia and Newcastle and human rights and why because all of the other Middle Eastern countries do it. And again, with Qatar, the organizers may argue they're scapegoated because they're a World Cup host. But it's not an argument to say, why only us? We should always be saying just why, question mark. So if Newcastle brings something to the fore in Saudi Arabia that's prevalent across the Middle East, then great. Let's make sure that it's fixed across all of the Middle East. And if the World Cup brings something to light in Qatar that's prevalent across all of the Middle East, then again, Let's fix it. It's not an argument to say everyone's doing something bad and wrong at the same level. So why are you only picking out Newcastle and Saudi or Qatar in the World Cup? We have to be saying sports brought something to light. It's prevalent everywhere across the Middle East in some cases anyway. Let's fix it. And that's the debate now. That's the legacy now. What happens when the World Cup goes away? What happens a year and a bit after the Newcastle takeover as people stop attacking as much the Saudi Arabian government directly in relation to Newcastle? How can we keep the conversation going? So that's what I'm looking for. And then I suppose I have to add, we have had a couple, unfortunately, of worker deaths during the World Cup. And the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy didn't Respond admirably or fairly or sensibly during the first one of those when a worker died in an accident during a resort. Nasser al Qatar who's one of the most senior people connected to the World Cup, said on record, why are you asking me that question? Dying is a part of life. Now, I know Nasser. I respect Nasser. And I think that he was taken aback by the question and didn't handle it in the best possible manner. I think if he had that question again, he would be more compassionate. But for somebody on record to say that death is just a part of life, even if that was only a small context of what was said, even if other things have been said afterwards, is not the right tone. And that's my worry going forwards now, that there has to be this genuine desire to look after human welfare in life. And therefore, once the World Cup goes, what's going to be done to make sure that worker conditions in Qatar and beyond are better, that pay is better, that communication is better, that housing conditions are better, that inclusivity is better. So that conversation still has to keep going. And the World Cup have done some very positive things as recognised by Amnesty International, but there are still some negatives as well and room for improvement. So. I think the Supreme Committee have done a really good job, I respect them, but I also think that now the burden of responsibility moves away from them Mm -hmm. and back towards direct government officials and that government have to find a way to continue their legacy, which is a big part of why they won the bid, and I sincerely hope they do that for the benefit of everyone. And then the last thing I just want to say, and it's not a criticism of the tournament in any way, shape or form. It's just horribly unfortunate, but I really want to mention it. We have had three journalists pass away during the course of the World Cup, which is devastating for all of us in the industry. And one of those journalists, Grant Wall, is somebody that worked with us at CBS and is the foremost voice, really, of the US soccer community and a global giant within journalism and Grant died unexpectedly at the Argentina Netherlands game and really just shocked everybody by passing away so unexpectedly. Every single journalist that has passed away um, has unfortunately done so very suddenly and whilst working on the job, so my thoughts and my prayers are out to all of their friends and family as a result. But Grant was somebody that I knew I'd crossed paths with. I've hosted panels with. He'd worked for us at CBS. Anyone that had read his work, I think, would have seen how passionate he was about both football and humanity as well. He was seen in Qatar wearing a rainbow coloured shirt, defending the rights of those perhaps that didn't have a platform to showcased their voice. And he was always looking out for people. He was always giving people a voice. He was always fighting for causes. And he had impeccable and insightful football knowledge as well. So obviously I wish his wife and now unfortunately widow, Celine and his brother, Eric, and his entire family and friends, huge condolences, uh, thoughts and prayers with them. Uh, it's just devastating that all three journalists have passed away at the tournament and a credit to FIFA for uh, paying tribute to them and leaving a condolence book in the media centre as well. So uh, those that knew them uh, within our industry uh, can pay our respects and then those books will end up being sent to the family and the uh, friends. So I just wanted to put that out there as well. Uh, it does make the tournament bittersweet, unfortunately, uh, knowing that those three have uh, passed away over the course of the last three weeks.
0: Yeah, rest in peace to those guys and our thoughts, of course, from the NUFC Matters community with their, with their families. We're going to have a quick ad break and then we will be back with a little bit of uh, uh, January transfer talk. Mm-hmm. A big thanks to all our sponsors. First off, Skips and Bins, telephone 0800 25 45 25 3, email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. Website skipsandbins.com, easy, contract-free and pay-as-you-go waste collection. Thanks to Garden of Healing Dispensary, CBD hemp and cannabinoid specialists. You can find them at thegohd.com. And thanks to Mr. Vicky's Sauces. They are handmade in Cumbria and you can find more information out on their website, mrvickys.co.uk. And if you want to order any, email info at mrvickys.co.uk or telephone 01768 210102. Big thanks to Blowhole Brewery, a new beer uh, made on Tyneside. The cans are all designed in the colours of Newcastle United, strips from days gone by. Black and white there, the purple and blue, and the good old-fashioned blue from the entertainers' days. I will get more information on the Blowhole Brewery range, such as Geordie Juice from blowholebrewery.co.uk. Thanks to Media Arts for all the help with the technical side of things and video side of things, and thanks to qtechshop.co.uk the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls and Newcastle, and the guys who do our website, nufcmatters.com. If you want to subscribe to the show, then all you need to do is click the subscribe button below. You can also hit the thumb up, which does us a favour by liking the video and click share to share to your social media, such as Twitter and Facebook. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and Spotify and the rest. And if you want to contribute to the show, Use the QR code. It takes you straight to the membership pack and you can join the channel. What do you get for your membership pack? You get a scarf, a cup, a pen and a membership card and entry into the monthly draw. You can also make a donation by hitting the dollar sign in the chat tonight. We also give you something for free if you subscribe to the show. To get your car sticker, email john at nufcmatters.com and he will post you one out. We also support the food bank on this show. And if you want to make a virtual donation to the food bank, then go to nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk and make a donation today. On our website, we've got lots of T-shirts, cups, pens, you name it, memorabilia if you want to buy it and support the show. For Christmas, we have the Bruno Christmas jumper, which is selling rather well. And we'll have the bobble hats, play like Almiron, Bruno's magic and Bruno's, 39, and Joe Linton's, J7. Get yourself to nufcmatters.com to buy them today. If you want to buy people a ticket for one of our events next year, we've got an evening with Steve Howie, which is Friday the 24th of February at the Tyneside Irish Centre. Tickets are £50 from nufcmatters.com or newcastlelegends.com. And you can also buy them on voucher before Christmas. Get somebody a bargain and a nice Christmas present. Peter Beardsley is on on the 10th of February at St Dom's Catholic Club in Newcastle. Tickets available direct from the venue. And for this one, Friday the 2nd of June, next year at the Grand Hotel in Gosforth, 6.30 start, an evening with Rob Lee, Lee Clark and John Beresford. To book tickets, contact Natalie at healandtour.org.uk or visit their website, healandtour.org.uk forward slash events if you're looking for a christmas present and people like a book then get yourself nme from the bender squad to the gremlins or the last remaining copies of black or white no gray areas lee clark's autobiography and you can get them from www.badboysbooks.net Okay, transfer window is opening up, Ben, and uh, Newcastle United, not expected to be too busy, uh, but will buy a player if the right kind of player comes up. Uh, the Madison stuff is, is obviously going to start circulating again. Um, you know we, we've spoken about it many, many times on here. Uh, but I mean, you, you've, you've highlighted the guy from you know Morocco's team who, who will now be on the world's radar. Are, are there any other players at the World Cup who you think might be on the move to the Premier League? Maybe Newcastle or maybe other teams.
1: I think there will be a few that put themselves in the shop window just briefly on Madison. I'd still be surprised if he goes anywhere in January it would take a massive offer but Leicester because they've got that Wesley for Farner money under no obligation to sell and the forms picked up and in addition to that James Madison didn't get any World Cup minutes so the price hasn't gone up to allow Leicester to cash in if they wanted to. Leicester's preference still is to get Madison to sign a new deal and as I've said many times I've been told that Madison would prefer unless an offer for example came in from a Man City who are definitely going to have Champions League football, Madison would prefer to wait because he doesn't know what he's joining. If he joins Newcastle in January, then he cannot guarantee they'll have Champions League football. The same can be said for a Tottenham or a Chelsea as well. So I think he'll bide his time and see what's on offer come the end of the season, barring an astronomical offer, which will have to be in excess of 60 or 65 million. And Newcastle's valuation for Madison was much closer to 45 million. So it's going to be very difficult for them to get Madison in January. And I'm only speculating with my personal opinion on this last point, but Madison didn't get any minutes at the World Cup. If Madison had had the same season for Leicester up to, the early December period, but was playing for Chelsea, Manchester City and so on, then would he have got minutes at the World Cup because he was at a so-called big club? And the answer is probably yes, because he'd be playing Champions League football, he'd be at an elevated level. But because he's at Leicester, seemingly Gareth Southgate didn't have as much desire to use him. And also he was called up later into the fold comparative to other players that Southgate trusted. So if that is Madison's thinking, and it's only a theory, I certainly haven't put that to Madison at this point, then is that even more reason to wait? Because if he joins Newcastle now and they don't make Champions League, does he worry that that hurts his England chances comparative to waiting until the end of the season and picking a club and a project that does have instant European football? So that's worth considering as well. But I think Madison moving in January isn't necessarily likely. And Newcastle would have to break their mould and pay above market value if they are to change that. And the other thing is whether any other clubs choose to escalate a push for Madison in January and cause a bit of a bidding war. But let me be clear again, Leicester's position is that James Madison is not for sale. And even though they said that with Wesley Fafana as well, they can be more bullish and firm with Madison because their finances are in better shape having not only sold for Farnà but done so on very preferable financial terms. So they've got a large chunk of that fee up front. Then other players, I think we have to look at Gonzalo Ramos, the Portugal star who replaced Ronaldo and scored a hat-trick and then kept his place as Portugal went out to Morocco. He was excellent against Switzerland, the man of the match. And how ironic, by the way, if... Ronaldo terminates his contract at Manchester United and then Manchester United, in inverted commas, replaced Ronaldo with Ramos, having also had that same dynamic for the Portugal national team, where Ramos ended up upstaging Ronaldo as well. So that transfers a possibility in January, not really prompted by the World Cup, because the thing with Ramos is that he was always on the radar of several clubs. He almost joined PSG over the summer, Wolves, Southampton, have both looked at him and Manchester United have also had him on the radar. But the challenge is just fee, because even before the World Cup, Benfica wanted 45 to 50 million euros and the club's interested valued him at at best 40 million euros. So 10, 15 million apart, potentially in valuation. And even though it was only one game, the World Cup may have increased that value even further because Ramos is a player... On form, He scored 18 goals for club and country, four for Portugal and 14 for Benfica and his release clause is about 120 million euros. So price could be an issue on that one, but it's one to watch. And then away from the World Cup, Mudrik is another one at Shakhtar that could easily go during the winter. Newcastle are one of the clubs that have looked at him. But they're behind a lot of rivals and they certainly haven't made as many inquiries or held any club to club talks with Shakhtar yet. But they've gone to Mudrik's agent to find out the lay of the land. Mudrik wants Arsenal, but Arsenal are not, as things stand, prepared to pay the asking price. And again, if we go by Newcastle's previous spending under this new ownership, they won't pay significantly above the odds either. So Shakhtar is saying that Mudrik, who's been excellent in the Champions League, is worth 100 million euros. But sources tell me that they'll actually entertain offers for 60 to 65 million euros. And yet bids over the summer from Everton and verbal discussions with Brentford valued him more at 30 million euros. So effectively, Shakhtar want double the price that clubs valued Mudrik at over the summer. So if that's a player that Newcastle want, they are again going to have to, dip into the checkbook and effectively decide that because there's a high level of interest, they want to pay above market value to get a player that they think can be vital to Newcastle United and their project. And I'm not sure that they're that convinced on Mudrick at the moment. And then Amrabat, as I said, is at Fiorentina. I don't think that they'll want to sell in January. Newcastle are not in the conversation for him but there's a variety of other clubs in the Premier League and Europe that are certainly looking. I think that it's probably worth mentioning Newcastle in the conversation for Josip Juranovic, who is another player that could easily end up going in 2023. He's a slightly more experienced Croat at 27 years of age. Many are talking about Josko Gvardiol, and that being the big transfer. And that's the player, by the way, when Messi got his assist in the semi-final that he run rings around. So Chelsea fans, for example, because they're the ones that are in discussions, were joking that the price will go significantly down and they'll be able to get a bargain yeah. deal now because Messi found him out. But he's the crowd that people are really uh, talking about. But uh, Josip Juranovic is one to... Watch superb for Croatia at Celtic at the moment, and a variety of clubs, including Newcastle United, are looking at him at the moment to see and understand what the transfer fee might be like, first of all, and where the player might like to move to. And you know, even though it shouldn't be a huge factor, because of where he's based geographically at the moment, and perhaps his family, it's not a long journey. And a big move to go down to Newcastle from uh, Glasgow. Um, So I don't think there'd be like a commute aspect. But I do know that he quite enjoys living in Glasgow at the moment. And he's got a lot of friends and family there. So Newcastle, as a small point, if they get into negotiations, can quite clearly use that to the uh, advantage as well as they get into conversations. So um, Celtic are under no obligation to sell because he's under contract until 2026 and that will obviously affect the fee and Newcastle might be a little bit wary uh, because he's 27 years of age that shouldn't be a, uh, a factor really because it's a player at his peak but I do yeah, know that yeah. Newcastle's general tactic especially if they're buying a player that they believe is there for depth uh, rather than necessarily walking straight in and I suppose there'd be a debate over this particular player and if he is in people's starting lineups, or if he is not quite there. Um, based on the World Cup, he would be. Based on his form for Celtic, um, it's harder to tell. But my point is just that if Newcastle are buying to throw straight into the starting lineup, I, I think this is a great age. If Newcastle are buying to develop um, and bed into the side as a player for the future, then in one, two years' time, the players push in at 30 and that's a challenge. So uh, the age is up there for discussion as well, but Newcastle is certainly in the conversation. Yeah, Newcastle
0: of course um have been investing heavily in youth and uh, Ivan Fresneda um has certainly made some headlines and uh, Newcastle apparently keeping tabs on him, Manu, Arsenal, Liverpool, Southampton all uh, supposedly keen on the Real Valladolid uh, uh, player, and um, obviously would be a, a good backup to, to the likes of Kieran Trippier. We know that you know Emil Kraft has been out, obviously for for a considerable amount of time, and it's, it's a written off season for him. Javier Manquillo, of course, is is still available as a right back at the club. But Dan Ashworth has this reputation for recruiting young players, and um, seems as if he's continuing in the same vein at Newcastle.
1: Yeah, and it's no surprise. I mean, every club is doing the same thing. They're looking to strengthen the now, but also plan for the future. And January can be a good opportunity because it's traditionally a quieter transfer window to plan ahead and to start thinking about younger talent and to start lining things up for the summer or to bring in a player mid-season and know that they won't get much game time, but they can be bedded in. And in doing so, by the time the next season comes... Their development starts to enhance. So I'd say that Fresneda is one to watch. He's only 18 at the moment and he only just joined, he only just turned 18 in uh, late September. But there's a big queue there. Uh, Celtic are another club worth mentioning. Everton have looked at Fresneda as well. So I think that Newcastle have a battle on their hands if they are to succeed in signing the uh, Valladolid youngster. Who uh, might also, given the opportunity, like to stay within Spain as well, and uh, that might be a factor in all of this too, because Valladolid um, only brought him through into their first team this year, having um, joined their club, I think, in 2020, and he played for Valladolid B, and is now starting to get opportunities. But his La Liga debut was on the 9th of September, from memory, um, in a away. Defeat to Girona, off the top of my head, anyway. And um, given how soon uh, that opportunity was, um, and perhaps the player's confidence that in the second half of the season uh, he'll be able to get more game time, anybody pitching to him for January is going to have to show him where he fits in. So, is that signing him now with a view to the summer? Is that signing him now and loaning him back to Valladolid? Is it uh, signing him now and throwing him into the first team? And that's perhaps where a club like Celtic might have the advantage because they may be able to say, well, we think you're up to standard to just play. Whereas a move to Newcastle or Everton, uh, even some are loosely saying Arsenal as well. There's going to be no game time now. So what's the plan? And I think Newcastle need to be very clear if they're to enter the race for Fresneda, what will happen next? You know, is it an agreement now for the summer? Is it an agreement now? And they loan him straight back somewhere for game time. Uh, or do they somehow think, which I, I don't believe will be the case, um, that the, the right back, um, you know, is going to play right now. And you look at who Newcastle play at the moment in that position. And obviously he's not going to get into the side. So, um That's the disadvantage, really, of also not having the multi-club model. If you're Manchester City, you can say to the player, join our network, we'll send you out somewhere, we've got options, we've got relationships. Newcastle don't have that at the moment. So uh, I think they're going to struggle to to sign Fresneda, um, unless it's one for the long term that's agreed now, uh, or they can show a clear pathway, because he simply wouldn't get any game time at Newcastle at the moment, in terms of the first team anyway.
0: Carabao Cup. Uh, coming up this week, uh, first competitive game Newcastle will have played uh, since the, uh, the start of the World Cup. How do you see that going, Ben?
1: Well, I think with the Carabao Cup, Newcastle don't really mind. It's a chance, I suppose, to give a few players opportunities and get a little bit of sharpness. And Eddie Howe from the group that went to Saudi Arabia will, will have a fair sense of who he's going to play And what kind of opportunities so, you know, someone like Elliot Anderson can be thrown into the side uh, and that's a nice moment for him. And from Hal personally as well, it's an opportunity to come up against Bournemouth, a club that he knows very well too. So the primary concern will just be to shake off any rust, to give some first team players not involved in the World Cup a bit of game time. And to continue the winning mentality and uh, prior to that as well, I believe on Saturday, Newcastle have also got a friendly against Rayo Vallecano to do that as well. Um, But we all know the big game uh, is on Boxing Day away at Leicester, so Newcastle better beat Bournemouth and get a win on the board because they're obviously not going to win at the King Power Stadium. (laughs)
0: <laughs> we'll cover that next week. We'll definitely have a show before Christmas, mate. As always, the clock is beating us, but a fascinating insight. And um, you know, thanks for for taking the time to to come on once again, Ben. Have a good weekend, mate. We'll speak to you next
1: week before Christmas. Yeah, have a good weekend, everyone. Good luck with the friendly and the cup coming back, and uh, look forward to speaking ahead of Leicester.
0: Take care, mate. Bye bye. <laughs>